Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. If you're a listener of this podcast, you know I don't tend to do long intros or monologues, but since 2020 is a year of firsts, here we go. Our handling of COVID-19 here in America has been terrible. And rather than coming together as a society, as a country, and more specifically as a wellness community, so many have taken the path of extremes when it comes to COVID. This is a pandemic of polarization. Look, some have said we need to hunker down, we need to shut down, and we need to do so until there's a vaccine. I won't go outside. While others refuse to wear a mask when grocery shopping and are out partying in bars. And what's been missing here is a sensible, reasonable, middle path forward for us. We here at Mind Buddy Green wholeheartedly believe that there's no one-size-fits-all approach to wellness, and this certainly applies to our handling of COVID-19. We need to respect the virus, but most of us don't need to live in a state of panic, as our guest, Dr. David Katz, will tell you on this very podcast. Of all the podcasts I've done, this just might be the most important. We desperately need to separate fact from fiction, take control of our health, and in many ways, we can't control COVID, but we can control our health, and we can strengthen our immune systems, and we know that plays a huge role and our ability to fight this virus or the next virus. And yet only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy and obesity disproportionately affects lower income, vulnerable populations and minorities who have limited access to healthy, nutritious food. Why aren't we all focused on our metabolic health right now? Why wasn't the message back in March when we first entered lockdown, hey, we need to social distance and we need to try to get through this by eating a little healthier, by moving, by strengthening our immune system? How about we try to help those get access to food who don't have access to it? Why aren't we talking more about what we can do to help solve our obesity problem here in America? We all know obesity is a huge risk factor for COVID. So where was that message from our leaders? And the mainstream media, you haven't been helpful either as you've been spreading fear. That's been your modus operandi. So why am I so upset that we're not talking enough about metabolic health, about the power of our immune system? Because rest assured, even if there is a vaccine, it doesn't mean it'll be 100% effective. There's a flu vaccine, yet people still get the flu. So much of what happens next is up to us. But here we are, and there's no time like the present. And I am a hope guy. I believe in the power of the human spirit. I believe in you, you listening right now, the Mind Body Green community. It's up to us. And I implore you to listen, to take notes, and share. It's time to change the narrative here. You, we, all. Dr. David Katz has emerged as one of the leading thought leaders in the discussion around COVID-19. He's been featured on The Bill Maher Show, and his op-ed in The New York Times has been widely lauded. He's a globally recognized authority on lifestyle medicine, the founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, the president and founder of the nonprofit True Health Initiative, and founder and CEO of Diet ID. Not to mention, he's the author of multiple best-selling books. Dr. Katz earned his BA at Dartmouth, his MD at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, his MPH from Yale, Suffice to say, this man has all of the qualifications we're looking for as we look to bridge the gap between Western and Eastern, as we all look to find a sensible path forward in a confusing and uncertain COVID-19 world. David, welcome. Good to be with you, Jason. Thank you. So a huge fan of your work and I'm so excited and honored you're with us. And boy, do we need you right now. (laughs) <laughs> that's very kind <laughs> and, and, well you know we're, we're gonna we're gonna do a deep dive on COVID-19 today and you know I'll start with this question in some ways you know how we're thinking about COVID how we're handling COVID is so representational of the world we live in the country we live in it's a world of extremes you know and, and you've said this previously on one extreme it's everyone hunker down until there's a vaccine or whatever versus everyone and the grandma out in the pool and let's go. <laughs> and so what's what what's sensible? 
Yeah, it, and, and so that is a huge part of our current problem. Now, it, l let's also be blunt. A huge part of our current problem is we don't have grown-ups running the country. A and the combination of one of the greatest crises in public health and living memory and inept leadership at the federal level is, is a toxic quagmire. A and a lot of the polarization issues from there you know, essentially we have a polarizer in chief, and that's really calamitous at this time. But the other thing we've got, and, and I, I really think it's interesting to, to be saying this to you, Jason, given who you are and what you do, but honestly what makes this pandemic unique is the Internet. It's the infodemic. It's the instantaneous dissemination not just of information and news, but opinions about information and news. All of that circulates massively and immediately. And... When you take those two things and combine them, so instantaneous information flow and a highly polarized society, you get essentially the refraction of news about the pandemic into opinions about the news, and those gravitate to the polls. So you wind up with, right, the only reasonable, moral, decent thing to do is hunker in bunkers until there's a vaccine, nobody come outside. And, you know, if that means everybody loses their job, well, then so be it. And if the world as we knew it never comes back, well, then so be it. And there's a sort of almost a moral assertiveness attached to that, where if you don't think that way, you're immoral and wrong and, and a bad person and you're trading lives against dollars. And then on the other side, you know, the, the other pole of opinion is it's not that bad. It's been massively exaggerated. You look at the numbers uh, and, and you put them in context of you know, other things that, that routinely take lives and make people sick. And we never should have shut anything down. Everybody back in the water, you know, including grandma, never mind the, the sharks and the riptides, all will be well. And I, you know, I, I've, from the beginning, rejected both of those polls. They're, they're absurd. But you know, I, I feel the same way about almost everything in our society. Uh, everything gravitates to you know the extreme poles of opinion and the nuance in the middle, which is where science and sense and respect for nature all converge, is routinely neglected. So here, what we know about this virus is that it's not an equal opportunity scourge. It's a bad disease for the vulnerable. It's routinely mild for people who are, who are healthy and young. And if we treat it with both respect and sense, We'd say, okay, we're going to protect the vulnerable, let other people go about their business, because frankly, you know what places you at risk of dying today? Living today. Living today. <laughs> being alive. The, you know, the, the only thing required to be at some risk of dying today is being alive today. There is no such thing as a zero risk scenario. So that, you know, the issue then becomes, is the risk of me getting COVID and dying from it lower than the risk of stuff that I encounter every day anyway, just by virtue of being alive. And when the answer is yes, I should be out in the world, but I don't want to transmit this to my 80-year-old parents. And none of us wants to transmit this to loved ones in nursing homes. So anyway, we, we have we bungled it in both directions, basically. And so in this scenario, which is seems to be a lose-lose scenario, you know, what is the middle path? How do we minimize harm? When there are no good answers. Yeah, yeah. So, and and you know, the the fact that th there are no good answers means we have to be humble. And you know, frankly, science works with well-informed conjecture. We call that hypothesis, and then hypothesis testing. So, you know, you sort of you you tentatively put your toes in the water and then your foot and your leg, you know, before you jump in. Um, so you, you do that. You you can actually, you know, if you were sensible about all of this, you know, again, if grownups were in charge, we, we might even have done pilot tests in different areas about, okay, let's see if we can open up our society so that, you know, young, healthy people are, are back at school and back at work and see what happens, you know, and do that for a span of weeks before we expand it. And, so, you know, again, there are lots of different ways to get there from here, but what, what the middle path, what the sensible approach looks like is, A, a focus on total harm minimization. And, and as you know, Jason, I, I wound up being something of a lightning rod uh, for advocating something that I thought was just so obvious that, you know, that this, this infection, which deserves our respect, can kill people. But massive unemployment can also kill people, mediated via social determinants of health. 
poverty, destitution, desperation, food insecurity, domestic violence, suicide, addiction. I mean, horrible stuff. So all of that's bad. Preventing any of it's good. Total harm minimization is the equivalent of looking both ways before you cross the street. You know, it's, it's as if we're so polarized. It's almost as if, you know, no, we've got one camp that says you only look left and one camp that says you only look right. And then you cross the street. No, look both ways before crossing the street. Well, similarly, you look at the harms of this virus and you say people over 70, people with diabetes, people with heart disease, you know, there's a clearly defined high risk group cannot get exposed to this bug. We, we, we really don't want them risking any meaningful level of exposure. And so, you know, they can't come back to a normal life until viral circulation is near zero. Most of the rest of us, however, the, the risks of getting a severe case of COVID fall below the threshold of many things we're exposed to routinely. So total harm minimization says we want to minimize the harms of infection, protect the vulnerable. We also want to minimize the harms of massive unemployment. There are over 40 million people unemployed during this pandemic in the United States, and a lot of those jobs will never come back, and businesses will fail and never reopen. And you know that's real suffering, too. The way you get there from here, I believe, is a risk-stratified approach. You take the data you have, and by the way, we don't have the data we should have even now. It's, it's stunning to me, Jason, because you know, when at the very beginning of all this, I was working with groups of colleagues and we, you know, we, we were trying to organize the data capture and we kept running into log jams, said, okay, we'll let somebody else do the CDC will eventually get it done. NIH will get it done. Somebody will get it done. Somebody whose job it is. We still don't have a representative random sample of the population of the United States, 50,000 tests, who's been infected, who's made antibodies out of those who've been infected, how many had symptoms, how many got hospitalized, how many needed the ICU, how many died so that you can actually report rates. You cannot say what the fatality rate is unless you have both the numerator, the deaths, and the denominator, how many people got infected. We still don't know how many people got infected in the United States. That's crazy. So in order to do really good risk stratification, you go out and you collect the data you need. But even just based on the data we have, we can already say if you are under 50 and don't have significant obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, you're at quite low risk. If you're under 30 and healthy, you're at extremely low risk. I mean, we, we think about, for example, kids in schools. The risk of dying from COVID for the average child is lower than the risk of dying from riding the school bus. Seriously. I mean, you know, we, we need a reality check here. So the, the risk will never be zero again because this virus is out in the world. It will never be zero. We, we can talk about that in risk distortion. But there's some level of risk below which you don't shut down schools and universities and life as we knew it because it, you know, it, it's a, we don't shut down schools because there's some risk of riding a school bus. We could. We could say, oh, no, no, you know, going to school puts children at risk and children will die, some vanishingly small number. But any potential threat to the health of a child is unacceptable. We will shut down schools until the risk of riding a school bus is zero. Well, then kids would never go to school again. So, you know, our thinking has become so distorted. So we have to be sensible. We want to use science. We have to interpret it correctly. And I think, I thought at the beginning when I wrote in the New York Times, I think now, total harm minimization is the right objective and a risk stratified or vertical interdiction approach. Protect the vulnerable. Let those at low risk return to the world and do it with precautions so that you've got a reasonable firewall in between the two. If, you know, if the young, healthy people are getting exposed to the virus, they need to stay away from those who are vulnerable. Like, for example, when we had significant viral transmission here in Connecticut, I didn't hug my parents. Uh, I, you know, I, we, we social distanced. They're sheltering in place. Uh, we wore masks and, and visited with them only outside. Now, as viral circulation in Connecticut gets to near zero, and there's almost no risk of any of us getting it if we don't travel outside the state, uh, I think it's okay for me to hug my parents again because I, you know, again, almost a zero risk of me transmitting to them. But we have to apply that kind of sense. Well, th there's a lot to unpack there. And, you know, I, I want to, so, so today's Thursday, June 25th, and this will probably go live a couple of days later and, and understanding the world is changing and data is changing. And I, I just want to touch on a couple, a couple points. So one, you know, does it, does, you know, one time I read that 98% of cases are mild. Does that still relatively hold, does that number hold up still? 
I think so, and it, it, the number may be bigger. And, and again, the problem is in any outbreak, what comes to your attention, if, if you are passive and just wait for data to come to you, you don't overlook people needing a hospital bed, you don't overlook people going on ventilators, and you don't overlook death. But people who have mild cases and don't even tell anybody, maybe they don't even know, you overlook that routinely unless you go out and seek it. And we've never done a good job of you know, canvassing the population, representative random samples. So yeah, so data from countries that have done a much better job than we have at data capture indicate that 98 to 99% of all cases are mild. And so you also mentioned the young and healthy, and you also mentioned the media. And uh, you, you shared a, a quote it's a, fr from your friend John Tesh, which I, I had to do a once over. I was like, oh, oh, I get it. That's clever. And he's, when talking about the mainstream media, the quote was, if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, and, you know, so it's, right. So John, you know, John's career has been in media. And so he knows it well. I actually knew a different version of the same thing. So that John gets credit for that one. I believe when I worked for Good Morning America, I'm pretty sure this was up on the wall in the control room, afflict the comfortable, comfort the afflicted. And the idea is, you know, basically, <laughs> you, you don't want to let people settle into a place of confidence about what's going on in the world and their understanding, because if they know what's going on and they understand it reliably, they don't need to tune in tomorrow. If you constantly rock people back on their heels so that they're a little bit disequilibrated, you know what the remedy is? Tune in tomorrow, we'll sort it out. Of course, we won't really sort it out, we'll just do it to you again, so you tune in the next day and the next and the next. I mean, we, we want your eyeballs. So comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. So in, you know, throughout this pandemic, both of those were true. If it bleeds, it leads. So let, let's say, for example, that you know, there's a death in a child. So if we got comfortable with the notion that this is a pretty mild uh, infection for children, you, you're, you know, you're running production for the morning shows or, or you know, the newspapers or you know, in whatever role in the media, it's your job to capture eyeballs and attention. Um, you, you know, a child has died. Now, maybe, uh, and it infected with COVID and died. Now, maybe this child had uh, leukemia, but you're going to bury that because that would explain why this child's an anomaly. You want to afflict the comfortable. You're getting comfortable with the notion that this disease is dangerous for some, not so dangerous for others. Ah, not so fast. We found a child who died of it. The headline is, you know, five-year-old dies of COVID infection. It's paragraph three where they say, by the way, this particular five-year-old had chronic leukemia and you know, was uniquely vulnerable and was not your typical child. By and large, by the way, that's what we've seen. Case counts in children, extremely low. Bad outcomes in children, extremely rare. And most of the time, they've occurred in kids who do have significant predisposing conditions. Now, is that absolutely always true? No, because there are probably some risk factors we don't understand yet in the genes and so forth. But that's what's been going on. And, and you know, I think really the unique element, Jason, when you compare the, the COVID-19 pandemic to every other pandemic in history is the Internet. It's changed everything. So we've had an infodemic. And we have had constant attention directed at this one threat for news cycle after news cycle after news cycle. And I think people have been led to the belief that were it not for COVID, nobody in America would die. This is the only thing that kills people. So completely overlooked and lost in the sauce is that 8,000 people die in America every day of miscellaneous causes, pandemic or no. 1,800 people die in our country every day from heart disease alone. Can you imagine, just imagine, I mean, seriously, try to imagine if everybody who died of heart disease made national news and we were getting updates 1800 times a day about people dying of heart, I mean, we would be freaking out. We, but what's in the drinking water? Oh my God, there's a cardiotoxin in the drinking water. I mean, we'd be running around like lunatics. So, you know, we've got all this stuff that hides in plain sight that doesn't activate us, but there's no question. The media have said, we want people to freak out about COVID. So, you know, the minute we find an anomalous case, national news. A young health professional dies, national news. We want to afflict the comfortable every chance we get.
And so the, the I love everything you said. And and the thing we also you hear so many stories of, you know, someone healthy, someone young, and what we don't know about that person, you know, is what what, what their health looked like in terms of their labs, in terms of their metabolic health. We know that 12% of America is metabolically healthy and that there are a lot of people who may look healthy on the outside, but you know, they're on the verge of diabetes, they're suffering from hypertension. Uh, they, they may not be obese, but they're not metabolically healthy, which, you know, begs the question, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, diseases like diabetes and heart disease, they, they creep up on you. Whereas uh, COVID does not creep up and is there's an urgency with COVID. And, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm a hope guy. I, I would say like, OK, there's there's maybe an opportunity here. If we have we know that, you know, our health could be a lot better in this country. And maybe if I'm not so concerned about heart disease or diabetes because, oh, it's a thing in the future and there's a slower region, slow erosion, whereas, oh, wait, these things, these, uh, you know, these potentially dangerous markers I have could kill me right now. And, you know, the difference between, you know, bringing my blood pressure down could go from a problem, maybe I take pills for 20 years from now, I can deal with that to, oh, my God, this could kill me. You know, why aren't we talking about that as a country? Yeah, yeah. So, so you rate, so as you said, there's a lot there, a lot to unpack. <laughs> so, so first, you're absolutely right. Not only is there a lot of ill health that flies below the radar, but even ill health that's fairly apparent, we kind of deny. I, there was a media report about, I think it was a 12-year-old boy uh, who died of COVID and supposedly healthy. And it was another one of those, if it bleeds, it leads. Let's afflict the comfortable. Another child dies. And he was healthy. And there's a picture of the boy. And you know his BMI must be over forty. I mean, he's he's, he's severely obese, and um, in fact, I you know I, I think he showed evidence of diabetes as well. Uh, well, that's not even remotely healthy. But in America, that qualifies as good health. You know, he was he was he, he was still here, uh, and just being here, I guess, is good health. Uh, so even when it's fairly obvious that there are massive problems with health, we kind of dismiss it. Uh, so we were a healthy 12-year-old, uh, yeah, but for the fact that, you know, he had severe obesity and, and type 2 diabetes, he was healthy. Um, and then, as you say, you don't, it's not like, you know, you go from perfectly healthy on Tuesday to type 2 diabetes on Wednesday. You know, it develops over time. So all of the risk factors that eventually make you overtly hypertensive, overtly diabetic, symptomatic with heart disease are building up over time. And that whole process involves impairment of immune system function, hyperinflammation, the very thing that predisposes to the cytokine storm that kills people with COVID. So whereas 30 million people in America have diabetes, 100 million people in America have prediabetes. So they don't register as having the disease, but they have the metabolic impairments that will give them the disease. So there's all that. So yes, health in America is terrible. Colleagues and I have published a couple papers during this. We basically found that the major predisposing conditions for bad COVID outcomes occur in at least 60% of adults in America, and 40% or more have, have two or more of these predisposing conditions, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, hypertension. And again, if, if you look at the population that's on their way to these things, it's bigger. Then the other issue is time. And, and I wrote about this, and I, you know, I think you're referring to that. I, I Actually, one of my columns has a picture of a saber-toothed cat, and the idea was you know, where does our sense of peril come from? It comes from trying to survive. And that was ingrained in us during the long sweep of evolutionary biology. So the threats that, that, that you know, put our lives in peril didn't play out over years and decades. There was no such thing as chronic disease in the Paleolithic. They were threats that came at us red in tooth and claw in, you know, seconds, minutes, maybe hours, rarely days. And once you get past days, you know, basically the fight or flight response is totally shut down. We don't get activated. So, you know, for 30 years as a preventive medicine specialist, I've been talking to patients about their vulnerability to heart disease, diabetes, et cetera. And it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, maybe you, you win. Maybe, uh, sadly, all too often you get people's attention after their first heart attack, after their first stroke, then they get religion. Then, then their adrenal glands get activated and they say, okay, I get it now. I'm panicking. What do I do? So there is 
at least a little opportunity if we if we grab it to make lemonade from you know the the, the lemons of this pandemic and that is the, the chronic health liabilities in America are massive, and they take years from lives and life from years. They hide in plain sight. They do it year in, year out. Poor diet alone kills 500,000 people prematurely in America every year. Let me say that again, right, because 120,000 people have died of the pandemic in America. In the United States, every year, poor diet quality kills 500,000 people prematurely every year. Okay, so all this hides in plain sight. What COVID is doing is saying, hey, you know, all those chronic health liabilities you pay no attention to because they come at you in slow motion and they don't tickle your adrenal glands. Uh, because of me, they can kill you tomorrow. And all of a sudden, people are saying, oh, God, <laughs> suddenly I care. Tell me what to do. Well, let's do that. Let's tell them what to do. So I think I don't think there's ever been a better time for a let's all get healthy together campaign. But the problem is we're not communicating that. All we're talking about is vaccines and masks. And, you know, the heart of what we do at Mind Body Green, what you do, it's about prevention and right. lifestyle. And so why aren't we talking about, and for someone listening, it's like, okay, how can we all get healthy? So when COVID, if COVID comes, because in some ways, you, you, you know, you can't control it. You hear, you know, you, you can, but so that we have, you know, we're, we're strong, we're, we're metabolically healthy. Well, so you and I are talking about it, so yay us. Uh, <laughs> and now it's just a question of how many people are listening. Uh, but, you know, so I, I, let me just pivot for a second. So I, I, I left my various roles at Yale after nearly 30 years to run a startup company, Diet ID, because I, I felt that what we were doing was that important. And we reinvented dietary assessment and tracking and coaching, and it, it's really cool. Uh, and we are absolutely trying to do exactly that. So, you know, we were in this business before, but we're now talking to clients and talking to worksite wellness programs and saying, look, you know, whatever else you're doing is your COVID. You may think, look, we can't talk to you anymore. We were interested in, in chronic disease before, but now there's the pandemic. Everything we're doing is pandemic response. We say, good, hold that thought. Part of your pandemic response should be look at your workforce, look at your population and ask how many of them are at risk for a bad outcome from this infection because of stuff that's broken that, that can be fixed because of obesity, hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, all of which can be fixed with lifestyle as medicine or certainly massively improved. And, and so the risk of a bad COVID outcome can be changed by as much as orders of magnitude in a span of days to weeks. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the interesting data points out of both China and the U.S. is that yes, type two diabetes puts you at risk for a bad COVID outcome, but there's at least a fourfold differential in the mortality risk between people with good control of their diabetes, in other words, normal blood sugar levels, and people with bad control. Well, you know that that could be done with medication, but it you know the most effective treatment for improving control in type two diabetes is diet and lifestyle. So we are having these conversations, and we're putting our programming and our source code and you know our our entrepreneurial innovations where our mouths are, and many others are doing the same. So we're reaching out to like-minded efforts, some in the for-profit space, some in the not-for-profit space, doing everything possible to say. Let's exploit this moment. But it leads back to the issue I opened with, Jason. We don't have grown-ups running the country. I mean, we really have inept federal leadership. So we're hearing nothing. I mean, you know, if we really had a coronavirus task force, we, we would have gotten sensible guidance from the start. We would have done lockdown in time for it to do us some good. We would have opened up carefully. We would have risk stratified. We would have put firewalls around our nursing homes. But we also would have been hearing a lot of what places us at risk, it's perfectly clear in the global epidemiology, is stuff that is chronically wrong with our health, that's fixable, let's fix it now. So at, you know, I would love to see a federal campaign. We are going to do everything possible with the full might of you know, the, the government of the United States of America to reach people with empowering services, education, programs, app, whatever it's gonna take. We're gonna have mobile vans around the country where we're going to, A, offer testing for coronavirus, and B, hand out fruits and vegetables to help people eat a little bit. I mean, you know, right? I mean, there's, just, there's stuff that would be so appealing and comforting and sweet and sensible and empowering, and of course, we're not doing any of it. Well, undoubtedly, a vaccine, whenever it comes, if it comes, will, will save lives. And so much of the conversation, so much of the hope is, you know, vaccine. However, I want to bring up, I, I think, 
the counterpoint to that is, look, there's a flu vaccine. People get the flu vaccine, yet people still get the flu. And, you know, just as of today, there was an epidemiologist in New Zealand, Simon James Thormley, who said, I don't think we can eliminate the virus long term. We're going to have to learn to live with the virus. And so regardless of vaccine or no vaccine, prevention needs to be part of the protocol. Well, so, so a number of issues there. Totally agree. Um, first, what you do now to modify your health risk for COVID is the gift that keeps on giving, let's face it. You know, I mean, if you fix your obesity, diabetes, heart disease, hyperinflammatory response, it's not just good because it will prevent you from dying from COVID. It's good because it's good. It's good because healthy people have better lives. Healthy people have more fun. Health is the gift that keeps on giving. It's just this is a, a, an acute reason to focus on long-term health. In terms of the vaccine, yeah, so first of all, counting on a vaccine is a fool's errand. Uh, you know, we've been trying to develop an HIV vaccine for uh, nearly 40 years, uh, you know, since the, the 1980s, and we don't have one, and we don't have one in sight. Nobody thinks that SARS-CoV-2 will be as quite as wily and difficult as HIV, but nobody knows it won't be. We don't have an effective vaccine against any coronavirus so far. And as you say, uh, you know, even influenza, which we know well and we have outbreaks every year, so far the best we've been able to do is a partially effective annual vaccine that has to be renewed based on guesstimates of which strain is going to circulate. So maybe SARS-CoV-2 is no better than that. Um, maybe it's in 18 months, maybe it's 36, maybe it's five years, maybe it's never. But, you know, the, the idea that we can all hide under our desks until we have a perfectly safe, perfectly effective, mass-produced, universally distributed vaccine is a fantasy. And so, you know, most pandemics end with herd immunity. Herd immunity usually comes when, you know, people who can safely get the infection, get over it, do exactly that, become immune, and then become, a, a, you know, essentially a dead end that prevents transmission to vulnerable people. We could achieve that by identifying who can most safely get this, who has to be protected. And then let's talk about New Zealand, because, you know, as we look at what's happening in the United States, where uh, as we're having this conversation, you know, we've had our first wave in the Northeast and, and levels are dropping precipitously. In my home state of Connecticut, we're getting very close to, to zero transmission now. New York City's had its wave and the wave is receding into the distance. And those parts of the country that locked down before the virus is there and are now opening up haphazardly are reaping the whirlwind. They're getting exactly what colleagues and I were predicting. You know, if, if you just flatten the curve and don't have a, a second phase to your plan. The minute you release the clamps, everybody's still vulnerable, the virus is still out there, and you get your first wave, you just get it on a different day. All the same people get sick, all the same people die, you didn't prevent a thing, you change the dates. New Zealand may look to the world like an example of success, but they're not. They lock down, they're an island, but if they ever stop their lockdown, they will have their first wave then. And what this means is New Zealand basically is in a lockbox. Nobody can leave and come back. If you are a Kiwi, you can't leave your country and travel anywhere and go back home. And if you're from any place other than New Zealand, they can't let you in. And, you know, unless they want to basically have protection protocols and quarantine. But then, you know, I mean, it, imagine you're going to New Zealand for a two-week vacation. Are you going to do a two-week quarantine before you can have a two-week vacation? I'm not. I'm never going back. I love it there, but you know, not if those are the rules. So that's not a successful formula. Uh, you know, the only way you get through a pandemic is to achieve immunity and a new equilibrium. And even after you have herd immunity, like we have for seasonal flu, it's still going to do bad things to some people. It just becomes one of those other factors that's out in the world, like any other infection. Uh, like yellow fever, like chikungunya, like uh, um, influenza, like traffic, uh, you know, uh, like air pollution. You know, there, there's stuff that's out in the world that kills people. And there are things we can do to minimize our risk. And we get the risk down to a level where we feel we're okay with it. And then we go about our business. SARS-CoV-2 is going to be like that. One of the great distortions, Jason, I think, you know, in this infodemic is the idea that, okay, so... The right thing to do at the beginning of all this was to hide under our desks, hunker in a bunker, 
because there was a risk of this infecting us and dying. It turns out that at the population level, the risk was very small, but still, you know, 98 to 99% of all cases were mild, but the risk was unacceptably high. What that means is any risk from this particular pathogen is too high. And therefore, having gotten used to hunkering in bunkers, we're not coming out until the risk is zero. The risk will never be zero. All that's required to be at some risk of dying of something today is being alive today. We knew that before. We have to find our way back to that understanding and say we want to minimize the risk of a bad outcome from COVID, but it will never, ever again be zero. So you, you alluded to what's happening in the reopening in Texas, Florida, Arizona, where it's just it's going terribly, quite simply. Yep. How do we not repeat some of these mistakes? Well, yeah, it's, it's a little late to ask the question. We, we, <laughs> there's nothing... It's so sad. I mean, there's nothing about the pandemic response we haven't bungled in the U.S. So in New York, I think we closed the barn doors after the horses were out. Uh, no fault, by the way, of, of Governor Cuomo, I think, really has, has done an exemplary job. I, I think in the beginning of this, quite reasonably, governors were waiting for federal guidance that never came. And so, you know, while the federal government basically fiddled while Rome was on fire, you know, eventually the governors said, OK, best, best to call out the fire department. But in New York, the virus was there. It was riding the subway. Uh, so I think you know most people in New York City prone to get this thing have gotten it. And tragically, many died. Uh, many have recovered. Uh, some were natively resistant and didn't get it in the first place, which is an important topic, by the way. I think there's a lot of that native resistance. It's, it's an undercurrent in, in the epidemiology that doesn't get enough attention. We can talk about that. But you know, essentially, having seen what happened in New York, the rest of the country, because, you know, this is how we roll in America, we, we basically dumb everything down, just assumed, uh, well, you know, case counts are going down there, we can open up. Well, no, case counts are going down there because they've had their first wave. It's washed over them. It's moving on. It's moving to you. And if you open up haphazardly, it's going to kill people. The minute you disrespect this virus, it's going to kill somebody you love period. And that's what's happening. And so, you know, essentially what, what needed to happen in Texas, Arizona, California, parts of the country that hadn't been hard hit, that had actually managed to go into lockdown before the virus was among them for the most part, was they needed to open up carefully by saying, okay, first out into the world, healthy young people and a high level of testing to see, does the level of transmission of the virus rise as people go back to the workplace. And, and if it does, if there's, you know, we're finding that there's a higher level of viral transmission, which by the way, is exactly what we would have found. Well, then, then the people vulnerable to severe outcomes need to continue to shelter in place. We're going to do this in phases. We didn't just open everything up, massive rallies, you know, again, everybody in the water, including grandma, never mind the riptides and the sharks. Well, you know, bad outcome for grandma that way. That's what we're doing in, in parts of the country. It's tragic. People are paying with their lives for foolishness and failure to learn the very obvious lessons of the pandemic pattern. Some people are highly vulnerable to bad outcomes. They need the utmost protection. Some people are not. They can be exposed. But, you know, why on earth, you know, if, if you are testing the waters, I mean, literally, let's say, you know, are the waters toxic? Let's find our oldest, sickest people and have them go test and see if there's a toxin. You don't do that. You know, you carefully lead with the most robust people who can most safely face a danger. We, we, just every possible way there is to bungle this, we bungled it. So you mentioned native resistance. Can you talk about that yeah. a little bit? So th this, is, and this is interesting. I, I, I feel really very persuaded that this is true, but I... I I hasten to append that I'm very humble uh, you know, about predictions in the pandemic, and, and I have lots of uncertainty, and I confer with colleagues routinely, and I particularly like conferring with colleagues who don't agree with me. You know, it's so easy to, these days, it's so easy to go shopping for the opinion you already own and say, ah, see, I was right. Now, so I talk to people who are prone to disagree with me, and I listen carefully to them. Uh, and so, for example, Mike Osterholm, who's arguably, you know, one of the greatest pandemic response experts in the world, He's not convinced uh, of this issue, and if I can't convince Mike, I don't completely convince myself. 
Uh, and for those who don't know, Mike Osterholm is a, an epidemiologist at the University of Minnesota. But but here's the thing. So I have noticed that on the Diamond Princess cruise ship, where really everybody was exposed to the virus, 20% of people on the ship got infected, 80% did not. On the USS Theodore Roosevelt, this famous story about the exposure in the Navy, that it's been a scandal about the you know how the Navy handled it, 20% of the sailors got infected, 80% did not. In New York City, a seroprevalence study after the virus was riding the subway, which 60% of New Yorkers use, 20% of people had antibodies, 80% did not. There's a province in Iran called Guilan that was particularly hard hit by the virus. It resulted in a peer-reviewed publication on a seroprevalence report. Guess what? 20%. So that's a really interesting epidemiologic coincidence. You know, places as diverse as the USS Theodore Roosevelt and Guilan province in Iran, massive exposure, 20% conversion to antibodies. What it says to me is more than 20% of those populations were exposed, but only 20% got infected. What was going on with the other 80%? Seems likely to me that their prior exposure to other coronaviruses or whatever else or genes or a combination made them resistant enough so that with average exposure levels, they just didn't get it. Is there a mechanism to back that up? There is. There's a paper in Cell now that has looked specifically at the functioning of T lymphocytes, the, the cells that lead the response against viruses, showing that T lymphocytes activated by other coronaviruses, which by the way are common and cause the common cold, um, trigger a response to SARS-CoV-2. So we even have a mechanism that would explain why about 60 to 80% of the population has T lymphocytes primed to protect them against coronavirus. One other critical issue here, Jason, and um, this is something a colleague and I just wrote about in Medium, dose. So, you know, okay, but what about, you know, the fact that this, this thing can kill, you know, healthy young health professionals. But yeah, if you're doing bronchoscopy in the ICU, I don't care if you've got active T lymphocytes. The exposure dose is so massive, it's going to overwhelm you. You're going to get sick and maybe even die. We're talking about, you know, average levels of exposure. It's in the air, it's on the ship, it's, you know, it's in the cabin, it's, it's circulating in your province, it's on the subway, but, you know, it's not a procedure, massive viral load in your face. So what I think is the following. With average exposure levels, I think 60 to 80% of the general population has some degree of native resistance. Uh, I think you can overcome that native resistance with massive exposure doses, which is why we have super spreader events, which is why it's dangerous to do bronchoscopy in the ICU and emergency room. Um, and you need special precautions with these intensive exposures. But if you've got the combination of 60 to 80 percent with some degree of native resistance and then 20 percent showing signs of antibodies, as we have in New York City, that is reassuringly herd immunity. Uh, you know, that's the threshold. You're there. I mean, we've been saying from the start you need 60 to 80 percent. Well, you add 60 percent plus 20 percent, you're at that 80 percent. I'm hopeful that that's the case. I, and, and if that's the case, you know, the, the members of that group that are natively resistant, they could still get it. We could still get it if we had a really intensive exposure. But we can avoid that by being just a little bit careful. And then I think I think we're well on our way to herd immunity. That's my hopeful yeah. projection. I, I am equally as hopeful. And I also, I, I think it's fascinating and there's something there. You can't just dismiss the cruise ship data because what we know about the virus, it's, it's enclosed spaces, shared air. They were all uh, there. They were all yeah. there. And, and, so, and I mean, so it really is. And again, I, th this is one of those tidbits of epidemiology that, that has managed to hide in plain sight. And it just so happened, I, I think the, the circumstance for me was, I think it was one particular day I was interacting with lots of colleagues, and it just so happened within a span of hours, all of these data points crossed my desk. And, you know, because it all happened with, in, in a time-contained manner, the dots connected. And I said, okay, and, and you know, I, I, the way I just rattled it off, I said 20%, 20%, it wasn't. Here's what it was, 19%. 21%, 20%, 19%, 21%. So it wasn't exactly the same. The range across all these, you know, amazingly diverse situations, 19 to 21%. So the average was 20%. There's no way that can be a coincidence. It, it, it would be one of the more bizarre coincidences in all of epidemiology. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's a really crucial reality check. 
And I think it means that, you know, we're not nearly as vulnerable to this as the infodemic induced panic would have us believe. Again, that I'm not saying disrespect the virus. Disrespect the virus, it'll kill somebody you love. It really will. It's done it to most of us at this point. Don't do that. Don't make that mistake. We, we can both respect the virus and understand that the sky is not falling. So uh, I'm assuming uh, transmission outside in the summer, probably unlikely. Very. And, and yeah, so, I mean, that's the other thing. You see people... I don't understand. So you see people who refuse to wear a mask, you know, and, and, you know, no matter how intimate or dangerous the circumstances. And then you see people, you know, on a bike ride with their mask on, you know, you know the likelihood, be, yeah. I mean, again, is there, you know, any suggestive evidence that somebody riding a bike, <laughs> you know, you know, along a road, uh, you know, has either gotten the coronavirus while doing that or given it to anybody. No. Uh, so, you know, there's these extremely low risk situations. So by and large, outdoors is low risk to begin with. Outdoors in sunlight, outdoors in heat, very low risk situation. Outdoors with just a little bit of caution and distancing, extremely low risk. I mean, there's so much that we could reasonably be doing that moves us in the direction back toward life as we knew it while keeping risk minimal. And again, it's it's this polarized thinking. It's we're either hunkering in bunkers or it's back to the world as if we have to make these either or choices. So if we're hunkering in bunkers, I need to wear a mask while I'm driving alone in my car. And I, I see people doing that. You know, I see people, you know, basically being extremely careless. And then I see people alone in a car with their mask on. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? And, Why are you wearing a mask alone in your car? And, and surfaces, there's still risk, but... Probably very not small. very small. Very small. You know. So again, you think about. Let, let me let me provide a quick analogy. So we we actually did this. So um, uh, Daria Long is a physician colleague. Uh, she and I wrote this piece on Medium, and we we raised this issue of dose, which uh, you know Daria brought it to my attention. I agreed with her. It's getting too little attention. So quick analogy: you have a compound. You're defending it with a security force. You are attacked. And the band attacking you is this ragged band of a few scruffy people with, you know, basically pointy sticks. Uh, you repel them. You barely even notice. They don't even disrupt your routine for the day. Okay, that's scenario one. Scenario two, you're attacked again by a band that's as well-armed and as sizable as your own security force. Well, you have the, the, the home field advantage. You carry the day, but there have been some casualties. It was a hard fight. And then scenario three... Same compound, same security force, massive army, completely overwhelms you, storms your compound, takes it over, you lose, they win. Okay, the compound is your body, the security force is your immune system, and the attacking army is the virus. It's exactly how it works. The numbers matter. So, you know, if you, if, if SARS-CoV-2 is out in the world, it is, and it's in the air or on a fomite, which is what we call surfaces that can transmit infections, it is, the amount you get exposed to makes all the difference. So, you know, how much you're going to, if somebody talks and a few air droplets land on a desk and the air drop, the water droplets rather contain some viral particles, um, and then you happen to touch the desk and then you scratch your face and, you know, at, at every step in the way, there is loss of viral particles. So the, the, the dose you finally get exposed to is that scruffy, haggard band attacking your compound. You repel them before your immune system even sees it. And by the way, we have evidence of this now, too. There, there seems to be a sizable population that has gotten the infection, gotten over the infection, and doesn't have the antibodies we measure. The antibodies we measure, and I don't want to go too deep into immunology here, but the antibodies we measure are IgM and IgG. These are sort of deep, blood-based, long-lasting antibodies. That's not the first line of defense. The first line of defense is something called secretory IgA. We don't measure that. It's too transient. But people who have a very small exposure dose they actually contain and eradicate the virus just with their IgA. They never make IgM and IgG. So they test negative on the antibody test, and it's a false negative. They've had it. They've gotten over it. They have partial immunity to it, but it doesn't show up on the test. Dose is so important, it even determines whether or not you make antibodies. So, um, yes, in principle, you can get this from surfaces. We really don't have any clear evidence that anybody ever has. The, the leading mechanism for exposure is direct transmission of water droplets from my infected face to your vulnerable face. 
And that's why masks are so helpful because are they a perfect defense? No, but if most of the water droplets spewing from me are trapped by my mask and only 10% make it out into the air to reach you, even if I'm infected, we've now cut the, the viral dose by 90%. You're less likely to get it at all. If you get it, you're less likely to get severely sick and you're more likely to become immune with that minimal exposure without even noticing it happen. There's been a lot of that. So, so there's, all of this speaks to the, the huge array of opportunities we have to minimize our risk, not just by avoiding exposure completely, but by managing the potential dose if we are exposed. And surfaces, you know, just, just the very fact that you've got water droplet to surface to next person to mucous membranes, there's so many steps and, and viral particles are diminished at each step it's a much lesser means of, of transmission than face-to-face. -face. So you mentioned kids in schools and, and buses earlier. So I'm going to come back to that because there was a great piece in The Atlantic today where they quoted Jennifer Nuzzo, an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins, who's strongly advocating for the opening of schools and summer camps, regardless of a vaccine, obviously with, with some precautions. And just let's stay on that. As a parent, we have a three and a half year old very, you know, in New York, it's a big question. What's going to happen with schools? What, what, what do we want to happen? What do we need to happen? Right. So let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess, uh, you know, sadly, my, my colleague and I may have waited a day too long. We, we, we could have been the ones you were quoting because we uh, this is another colleague, Kelly Close, um, a disaster response expert, emergency physician uh, trained at Yale. So we, we have an ancient history there. Uh, we wrote a piece together saying kids should go back to school now. Um, and and I'll, I'll explain why. But the critical issue before kids go back to school is we must have policies in place to say what if the kids going to school live with their 70-something grandparents who have heart disease, right? So, you know, we cannot be cavalier about any of this. There are situations that are nuanced. It's not as simple as a light switch, all on, all off. We need a dimmer, you know, so we have to be able to adjust and titrate. So in a situation where the kid has a chronic illness or lives with people who are highly vulnerable, what precautions are going to be taken? So all of that's manageable. It's, you know, it's not a trip to Mars. It's less complicated, but it's not completely easy either. We have to think through the nuance. But given that, back to this issue of total harm minimization, uh, it's pretty clear that the disruption in school comes at a very high cost to kids. So, you know, we could look at the, the math we have, the data we have, and, and, you know, make some estimate about the, the number of kids whose health has been protected by virtue of shutting down the schools. But we would have to juxtapose that against how many kids have suffered from the lack of socialization, interaction with friends, mental duress, been cooped up with, uh, you know, difficult situations with families prone to domestic violence, uh, child abuse. Um, the net harm appears to be massively greater than the net benefit, which means we've done net harm. Shutting down schools has done net harm to the kids. Uh, so it's intrinsically a bad thing if your policy response increases rather than decreases the harm done to the population you're trying to protect. And I think we have, and I think the evidence is clear. It's also clear now, despite the, the rare cases of Kawasaki-like disease, despite the rare deaths among kids related to COVID, that overall the risk of a bad COVID outcome in children is so vanishingly low that actually it is a considerably greater risk to let your child ride the school bus than to worry about them being exposed to SARS-CoV-2. And we've lost track of that. So this is, these are the kind of, and we actually report the numbers in this piece that we'll be publishing later today, that, you know, being a child in the world means you face some risk every day. If you ride your bike, if you cross a street, if you commute to school with your parents driving you, and if you ride a school bus, tragically, bad stuff will rarely happen. Those numbers are actually higher numbers than the risks of bad things happening to kids as a result of SARS-CoV-2. So since we don't shut down school because of the risk of riding school buses, we really have no business shutting down school because of the risk of SARS-CoV-2. What we do have a business doing is saying, okay, if the kids go back to school, how do we manage the risks related to potential transmission to those who are more vulnerable to bad outcomes? All that has to be developed. So we can't, I, I would say you don't just rush to open up schools the way we rush to open up Texas. Otherwise you get the same kind of mess. 
But yes, we, sh- we should plan the reopening of schools and have strategies in place to say, here are the various scenarios. If it's a family where everybody is healthy and under 40 or 50, you know, essentially we, we need uh, minimal precautions. If there's a higher risk person at home, if there's a higher risk sibling, if the child has a chronic disease, if the grandparents live at home, then this, then this, then this. We, we need a Chinese menu here. You know, we, we, need, we need a suite of options. So we have a very smart, engaged, influential uh, audience here at Mind Buddy Green. Many of the people listening or reading this, uh, you know, are, are influencers and have their own media platform. So, you know, wh- what's what's the what's the message? What's the, what's the opportunity for us here as a community uh, who cares very deeply about the health and well-being of of our country, our world. What's the message you want to share with those people? A call to action, if you will. What's the opportunity for us here? Great. Well, thank, first of all, thank you for offering me the platform to, to speak to this audience. And audience, hello out there. Thank you for listening in. I appreciate that, your ears and, and your response. And, and, and what you just proposed, Jason, you know, that's the value proposition here for me, right? I mean, otherwise, this is just so much yakety yak. But if you talk to people who can, who can you know, sort of grow the movement, okay, that's great. So, so here are the things. First, let us be a force for reason, for moderation, for that willingness to look both ways before crossing the pandemic street. In other words, yes, the virus can hurt people. Let's respect that. But let's also recognize that 40 million people unemployed and kids kept home from school harms people. This is not a trade-off between lives and dollars. This is lives and lives. Lives and livelihoods are ineluctably conjoined. Kids missing a year of school suffer. In, in terms of health, mental health, physical health, these things matter. So first and foremost, let's think in terms of total harm minimization. I think that should be an objective we, we all share. Second, let us recognize and espouse the view that this virus can be respected and yet not be regarded as you know the, the, the sky falling in an end to life as we knew it because it is not an equal opportunity scourge. It's a highly dangerous pathogen for a small, highly vulnerable segment of the population, especially nursing home residents, but you know, people who are older, people who are chronically ill. It is generally at the level of risks we willingly confront in our routines for most of the rest of us. It truly is comparable to seasonal flu for most of the rest of us. So we need a reality check. Three, uh, I think we put those two things together and, you know, we advocate for, you know, careful stratification of risk as a means to total harm minimization. For, in the spirit of what mind, body, green is all about, we say a lot of what makes us vulnerable is modifiable. This is true for adults and children alike. And so, you know, in whatever ways you can become agents of change that say, we always had a reason to think about making our population healthier. Healthy people have better lives. But now there is an acute threat into the bargain. If you can become healthier in the short term, eat better, be more active, avoid toxins, manage your stress, all of that can actually alter your vulnerability to this infection within a span of hours, days, massively within weeks. What can we do? So this audience of influencers, you know, what can we do to say, the acute threat of COVID shines a spotlight on the chronic liabilities in American health. There has never been a more crucial time to think of all the ways we can engage in health promotion campaigns. Uh, I think that's really an important part of this. And then I think we also need to put science and sense together and, and accept the fact that with this virus circulating globally, you know, the, the lid off Pandora's box has been lifted. Uh, you know, putting it back doesn't make a difference. There's, there's no way to undo what's been done. So the risk from this particular pathogen will never again be zero. Um, so we, we, you know, I think this, this audience, um, you know, can basically radiate out to contacts. Look, you know, we need to think in terms of minimizing risk. But we can't be waiting until the risk of this pathogen is zero before going back to the world because otherwise we'll be waiting forever and the damage we do with you know, the permanent lockdown will be so massively greater than the damage done to the infection uh, that we will have met the enemy and it is us. I'm glad you brought up, brought up respect 
there's a fine line between respect and that fear that overtakes you. Respect and panic. Panic yeah, is respect bad. And respect panic. is good. Yeah, I, I, you know, I am not afraid of this virus. I, I deployed to an emergency department in the Bronx as a volunteer. I went to the front lines. My family was afraid. I wasn't. But, you know, I had to argue with my parents, my mother weeping. I had to argue with my wife. I had to argue with my kids. Eventually, I persuaded them. I went. I'm back. I'm fine. I wasn't, I wasn't afraid. But do I respect this virus? Do I know that the minute you disrespect it, it is a lethal threat to somebody you love? Hell yeah. And, and again, I think this audience can be that, that, that army of reason that said you don't have to choose between the two. Our options were never just hunker in a bunker forever and hope there's a perfect vaccine versus everybody out into the world, no matter how old, how sick, how vulnerable, and you know, let's be dismissive uh, of this pandemic. We were never obligated to choose between those two silly extremes, and yet all too few people have found their way to the middle path. So I would say to this audience, please join me there, and you know, together, let's get this right. Amen to that. Dr. David Katz, thank you for all the work you are doing. It is important uh, more than ever, guys. We, we, have to, we have to spread the word. We have to, in your words, we have to respect the virus, but we can't let it overtake, it, overtake us with panic. Amen. Jason, thanks so much. Thank you, thank you.